Hi, and welcome to the Your Purpose is Calling podcast, conversations with Christians that are finding purpose, redefining work, and changing their world. I'm your host, Don Sadler, the Christian Productivity Coach. Every once in a while in this podcast, I have a conversation that just changes me. Today is that kind of episode. This is a conversation that hits so deep that it forever changed the way I think about calling and what it means to walk in radical obedience. See, for most of us, saying yes to the calling on our life doesn't take us to the most war-torn communities of Syria, Iraq, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But for my guests today, these were the very places they felt called to serve. Edison and Cassandra Lee are the co-founders of Justice Rising. Justice Rising is a nonprofit that works to transform communities devastated by war through education. Their work includes building schools, training teachers, leadership programs, vocational training, and more. Edison and Cassandra's story is dramatic, but it is also one of hope, radical obedience, and the goodness of God in the midst of unimaginable human suffering. If you have ever struggled with the fear of saying yes to God's calling on your life, I believe this episode will inspire you with greater faith and boldness. You can access the show notes for today's episode, including where to find out more about Justice Rising at donsadler.com slash 048. And now let's meet Edison and Cassandra. Hi, Cassandra. Hi, Edison. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. So good to be here. I feel like I open every single podcast episode with, I'm so excited about this conversation, but I really am so excited about this conversation and to talk to you guys about the incredible work that you're doing. I can't wait to share this story with our listeners. But to begin, uh, let's start off with, please tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, we are Cassandra and Edison Lee, and we work, we run the organization Justice Rising. And the organization, it's a nonprofit that works mostly overseas in conflict areas using education as a way to transform places of conflict. So we build schools, we train teachers, and we develop community leaders, all for the sake of how do you build peace and use education to really transform these places of conflict. Yeah, that's amazing. Why education? What was so important about education as a tool um, to rebuild some of these areas? Yeah, education. It's funny because when we first started the work, I never thought we would be doing schools and focusing on education. Really started traveling around to different conflict zones, asking the question, how do you bring peace? How do you best respond to conflict and crisis? And how do you respond with not just a band-aid on this massive issue, but how do you really go deep, go to the roots of the problem and find a solution that's going to have to really build peace for generations to come, which I know sounds very optimistic and very lofty goal. Um, But when you're sitting with families who have seen decades of war you really, it seems like a normal question to ask. It seems like a normal solution to be pursuing of, okay, well, how do we stop this so that your kids and your kids' kids don't just keep cycling through this um, war and conflict? And so really looking at, okay, what is the best way to bring peace? When we prayed about it, it really felt like God was speaking education, build schools, use this as a catalyst to see transformation. And at the time I I was like schools, like I didn't even really like school growing up. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but the more kind of researching and looking into it and seeing the power of education, seeing what education can do in places of conflict, but honestly, globally, you look at any corner of the world and education has this incredible ability to transform mindsets and to really, yeah, transform communities. And so it was from that place that we started building schools and going after education. But I think also, 
when you look at the work of peace building, and we always say that uh, on our, you know, on its face, Justice Rising as an organization looks like an education organization. But in terms of our central and core mission, we are really a peace building organization wanting to serve people that have been living in protracted places of conflict for long, you know, for years and years. And so I think when you look historically at the work of peace building, most most of the work has been approached from a top-down policy-driven level, and which is not to you know, minimize or diminish that in any way. But when you think about the policies that are created and the policy makers, they're not always proximate to the communities that are most deeply affected um, by conflict, and they're not living the day-to-day in those communities. And so from our perspective and through just the relationships that we've been, we've been able to build over the years, um, education is so formative at the community level and is so transformative um, in, in real lives day to day and really builds and creates the, the agency that people need to create and initiate change in their own communities. I think that's amazing. We're going to talk about how it is that you both came to feel called to um, some of the world's most dangerous conflict zones. And uh, and that's a whole other part of your story that I'm excited to dig into a little bit later um, in the podcast. But I want to I want to talk a little bit more about this um, uh, education piece. First, our, share with us some of the conflict zones that you have worked in or that you're currently working in. Uh, tell us a little bit more about where you where you've served. Yeah, we're focused mostly in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, so right in Central Africa, and then in the city of Goma is where we're based, and then we move up through the province of North Kivu, so it's right across the border from Rwanda, and that conflict has had one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II. And with over 5.4 million people being killed, I believe, by the conflict, um, it's been the worst place to be a woman or a child, rape capital of the world, and just the stories and the devastation that has come out of there is, is not often talked about considering the level that it's at. Um, so Congo's our main focus, and then we've slowly been expanding to the Middle East um, in various conflict areas in Iraq and Syria. And so we would love to continue expanding, but yeah, those three places are our focus right now. It's so interesting to me because I think that those are places where most people would think, I never want to go there. And you guys are like right in the right in the middle of it. And that's an, just an overwhelming and incredible thing to me. And one of the things that I read about you in research for this podcast is this picture of boys, uh, young boys who are child soldiers, um, either have served as a child soldier or are at risk of becoming a child soldier. Uh, and there's a, a program where they exchange guns and are given soccer balls. And that, man, that just struck me so much. Tell me a little bit about the power of, and you mentioned it's the rape capital um, of the world. Tell us a little bit about how education lands a little bit differently in those zones between boys and girls, what it means, how it changes their story. Um, and I know it's it's a, a lot of different building blocks. We're going to talk about those, but but tell us the power of education, because I know gender parity is, a, is something that's really important to you, that boys and girls are each receiving education. Tell me a little bit about how that lands differently and the importance for boys versus girls. Yeah, well, and working in these areas, um, one of our passions is really going going to some of the worst areas we can find and really looking and saying, okay, where does no one else really want to work? And how do we focus on those areas? And as we started building schools and connecting with communities, we noticed that it was easier to fill the classroom with boys than it was with girls. And so a lot of times, yeah, you find young girls are staying at home and they are in charge of the children or taking care of their younger siblings and cooking and cleaning. And they just had so many different roles that made it really difficult for them to get to school. 
And we noticed that the girls that weren't at school were also at risk of being trafficked. They were often um, victims of becoming child brides. So as they're home taking care of the siblings or cooking and cleaning, they're all alone as their parents usually go to the farm and the parents have other work to do. And so older men would come to the home and these poor young girls, you know, some barely 10 and these men would promise the world to them, get them pregnant and, or just take, you know, offer some money to the family, which they were in desperate need of. And the story would just completely change. Whereas we found if we were fighting for those girls and really advocating to the parents, okay, we, we have to invest in these girls now and send them to school, even though there are need for them at home, you know, are there other ways that we can meet those needs or, um, in order to get these girls to school, school was really a safe haven. It was protection for these girls. They weren't at home alone, vulnerable. And not only that, but while they're at school, they're developing confidence and various skills and just a different vision for their lives. And we found that they even carried themselves differently. So where they might've been quieter and just, um, I don't know, just much more shy and not confident when they would speak to adults, when they were educated, they were standing taller and they just, there, there comes this confidence. I keep saying that word, but, um, for these girls where they would stand up to men easier when they were educated. So we just began to see this ripple effect, um, over girls, especially when they were educated, but honestly, young boys as well. Like with the young boys we work with, they're often in areas where soldiers, the war is going on. They're constantly rebels in their communities. And when that's all you see, if you're not at school, our staff often says to us, our local team, they're like, if you're not educated in a classroom, you're educated on the streets. And so if a teacher's not teaching you, these rebel soldiers are teaching you and young boys are far more likely to be recruited into the army if they're not in school studying. And so we've just seen the tremendous benefits of education, both directly, obviously, and teaching them reading and writing and various skills there, but even just the ripple effect of how it protects them from conflict. And it's just, it's incredible. And I think overall, education is just so much more than what happens inside the classroom. Mm-hmm. I think education is so much about the people that we are going to become over time in terms of character, in terms of our moral you know, strength and character, and I think in terms of just how we relate to one another. And I think you, you know, we have the benefit of you know, when we go to you know, school growing up here in the U.S. or anywhere else around the world where we kind of take education for granted. But when you're working in, you know, a a remote village that maybe has one school an hour away, education is not necessarily a guarantee. And so I think we really have to, you know, we really, we really had to understand what, what are some of the barriers to getting some of these kids into school in the first place. And for that, we really needed to lean in to our local team who obviously have a much deeper understanding of the local culture and the customs and how people think. And we really just had to lean in and leverage their local knowledge and expertise and just talk to people, you know, even just in terms of trying to get girls into school, you know, if it would be one thing, if, you know, Cassandra and I, we went into one of these communities and said, Hey, you guys need to get your girls into school. And, you know, people would say, okay, great. You know, you can say that because you're from the U S and, but that doesn't mean anything to us. You don't know our way of life in this village. But it, you know, the tune completely changes when we have one of our local Congolese women staff who are university educated and have come from similar backgrounds. And some of them have come from war affected communities themselves. And so when they go into a community and tell families and sit down and tell you know, their girls why they should go to school, it's coming from the perspective of a university-educated woman, a Congolese woman, who have walked in their shoes. And so it, it just carries a different weight with it. And I think, you know, one thing that, you know, I, I often, you know, get a chance to talk about, which, you know, 20 years ago or, you know, 10 years ago, <laughs> I never would have thought about is, you know, you know, what are, you know, in terms of key, you know, 
barriers to entry for girls in schools, their menstrual cycles, which again, I never thought working in finance, I'd ever even talk about that. <laughs> but, but yeah, that, that's a key stigma that, that prevents a lot of girls from going to school in the first place. So how do we talk about um, you know, the, cha- the changes that girls are going through? And that's not something to be stigmatized or to be ashamed of, but really open up to families and girls um, and encouraging them not to miss school just because their bodies are changing. And that's something that we don't really think about here in the U.S. <laughs> it's something that is a daily reality there. I feel like every time we do a little health seminar in the Congo, they often want Edison to speak a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, can we talk about periods as well? I think they just get a good chuckle out of it too. <laughs> we're, trying to, we're trying to take away the shame and the stigma. And so it's like, oh, look, even a man is bringing it up a little bit. And even he is talking about it without shame. So we, none of us have to be ashamed. But I always get a good laugh. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I love all of that. The thing that is so remarkable to me, and we talked a little bit about this before I hit record, is that um, in the areas where you serve, children have seen things that we cannot even imagine. Adults have seen things and experienced things and walked through things that we can't even imagine. And I think it's easy to feel like, how does anybody rebuild their life after some of the things that these children walk through or have seen their parents go through. And I think that as you talked about education, what I kept hearing is just the word hope, right? And what you do, you have a lot of different programs. You've got teacher training and vocational school and a storytelling movement to help people work through trauma. Each one of these is sort of this, this building block. But can you share with our listeners just a little bit about maybe some of the success stories? What have you seen um, happen in the lives? How have lives been changed through going through this program in the places where you work? Yeah, well, Oftentimes when we're sitting with various students and we're talking with them, especially those who've come from very dangerous active conflict areas, we'll ask them like, Hey, what is, what are some of your earliest memories? Or like, what is, what stands out when we talk about memories? And they're all absolutely horrific stories. And oftentimes running from war or seeing someone they love shot or beheaded or just absolutely grotesque images. And these little kids are just talking about them quite matter-of-factly. And so a big emphasis for us is on psychology and really helping these kids work through some of their trauma. And one of the programs we have is called the Storytelling Movement. And so it's really getting people to talk about their trauma, which oftentimes in a war zone, especially in some of these more rural communities, they don't really like to talk about the trauma. Um, Sometimes there's um, these beliefs that if you talk about a traumatic memory, it's more likely to happen again. Um, Mm -hmm. Or they think, well, everyone's gone through the same thing. Why would I bother burdening someone with my trauma when they were there as well? But we kind of remove, try to remove that stigma. Again, our local community is key in doing this more so than we are as they just have so much more authority on it. But we'll talk about, okay, it's important to share about your trauma and really moving those traumatic stories from their short-term memory to their long-term memory. And so I was talking to one of our boys involved in this program, and it's this group of kind of teenagers in the rural community. They meet to play soccer, and part of the arrangement is, okay, you can play soccer. We'll give you all the soccer equipment you want, soccer balls, cleats, jerseys but you have to continue to come to like these other programs that we have. One of them being the storytelling movement. So I was talking with this one boy, Jackson, and I was asking him, I was like, well, how has the program impacted you? Like, is it actually doing something or is it just a soccer league? <laughs> like how, how important are these other little um, things that we have attached to it? And he just kind of looked at me and in Congo, I'm called Sandra. And he goes, Oh, Sandra, like you have no idea. And he was kind of offended that I would even ask. And he was like, I grew up in this area and I remember war coming and one time seeing this very violent outbreak. And he goes, my friends and my family, they were killed in front of me. I saw many of them die. He goes, but I was lucky enough to get out and run. 
And he goes, I lived in another community for many years and recently decided to move back to the area that we're in. And he's like, as I moved back, I found a house, you know, I'm older, I can have my own house. And as I was making this house a home, I realized that some of the perpetrators of the violent acts, killing friends and family, they were my neighbors. They lived just close to me. And he goes, in that moment, I was so angry and I was planning on killing them. And he's like, I knew if I killed them, there would be no repercussions for my actions. That's, he's like, we're in the village. We can, some of these things can happen. And so he was talking with this group in the storytelling movement. And he was telling them like, I'm so angry. I'm so, you know, I just hate these people. I've seen what they did. And he was telling them like, I'm going to kill them. And this is how I'm going to kill them. And he goes, my brothers in this league, they were able to talk to me about forgiveness and the power of forgiving these perpetrators and really releasing them. And he goes, but not only that, but also living and doing life with them. Like, how do you move beyond hate? What does that really mean? And he was saying, he's like, not only did I forgive them, but now I live in community as they are my neighbors. And it was just, it was so powerful for us because I was like, man, can you come and talk to us during this whole cancel culture thing? Like, can you share your wisdom with us? Um, So you just see the power of some of these programs and some of the uh, long-term effects that they have on these communities that, you know, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have really judged him if he maybe killed him. Yes. But if he just hated them, we would kind of understand it. Like, okay, we, you saw that person kill your family. Yeah. Like that's, that's awful. It's, you don't have to love them, but for him to, to go to that place, it's just, it's just such a powerful example of, of what these programs, yeah, the impact that these communities are having. That seems unimaginable to me. It seems unimaginable to reach that level of forgiveness. And also, like you said, the power of community, that there were people who, you know, like you said, it wasn't Americans coming in saying you should forgive them. It was people who had experienced similar things and had their own pain and had worked through it. And just the power of community in those situations, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's... uh, that will stay with me for a long time. Um, I wanted, I want to talk about, so education is important. This is, um, something that you guys focus on. I'm sure a lot of challenges in, um, running a nonprofit like this on a day-to-day basis. And you probably didn't need another challenge, but earlier this year, of course, or last year, by the time this airs, um, COVID hit. Tell me how COVID-19, you know, here in the U.S., everybody just, you know, stayed home and got on Zoom and did it that way. But in a an environment where you don't have technology to lean on, tell me how COVID-19 impacted your work and how you responded. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so similar to, to here, things really didn't lock down probably until about March in the Congo. Uh, so about middle of March, there was a nationwide closure of schools, which obviously that deeply affected our work, considering that we <laughs> operate a network of schools. Um, but I, I think we really had to ask the question, um, you know, if, if our mission is to transform war zones through education, how, how exactly do we accomplish that mission or work towards that mission when schools are shut? And so I think we also understood, um, you know, us alongside of our team that, that, you know, even though education in that particular moment might not have been, you know, a, a major public health concern, um, you know, public health education absolutely would have some kind of major impact during that time. And so, you know, one of our goals and challenges was, okay, how do we justify continuing to keep everyone on payroll without making any kind of cuts when schools are shut, no one's working? And we wanted to make sure that every single teacher and staff member you know, stayed on with us. And, and one thing that we noticed right away was that there, there was just a ton of misinformation going around, especially in rural communities where they didn't have access to the same public health messaging as some of the, the more urban centers. And so we redeployed and trained our teachers to become public health agents of the communities that we're working in. 
And so they went around door to door, um, you know, passing out, um, you know, different pamphlets and key, you know, reinforcing key public health messages that, you know, were also supported by the World Health Organization or, you know, MSF or the, the you know, national kind of health agencies in the, the Congo. And so we were working alongside a lot of those um, you know, organizations to spread the, the correct information that people just simply weren't getting. And one thing that we also noticed is that even on Facebook, we would see so much misinformation and we just had to bust a lot of these myths, um, especially in the communities that we're working in. And so just handing out PPE, you know, PPE, um, you know, sharing the the key health messages. Um, But we also, as an educational organization, we had to figure out, okay, how on earth do we respond to distance learning right now? It's not like most... You know, families have access to computers or the internet. You know, kids can't just log in to Zoom or Google Classrooms. It's just not. It's just not a right, thing right. In the middle of the Congo, and so we really had to kind of rally our teachers and our program staff. I mean, they're you know, they're all such incredible uh, professionals and so good at what they do. And we just had to rally and build a distance learning program from the ground up. And so what we ended up doing is we designed physical workbooks um, that we, you know, you know, kind of organized for each grade level. And our teachers went door to door providing personalized care, you know, attention and tutoring where needed, but also handing out these distance learning packets. And then over time, they would come back, pick them up, grade them, return them, and then hand off the next uh, packet as well. And so it, it was a lot of tedious, kind of very involved work, um, and which is a major credit to our staff and our, our teachers who worked so hard during that time. And then on top of that, we decided to pilot a radio education program. And so while most families don't have access to laptops and and you know the internet, about you know 70, 80 percent of families actually do own a radio. And so that's a really easy way to kind of get wide, broad kind of penetration into different homes and have access to um, you know, our students where we can have those kind of live lessons um, that's, you know, kind of walked students through the problem sets that were, you know, printed out on the workbooks themselves. So it, it just gave us a lot more flexibility in terms of being a little bit more engaging without necessarily having the benefit of the technology that, you know, students and teachers can leverage here in, in the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, so we, we had to kind of innovate and and kind of become a little bit resourceful in how we approached it. I love that responsiveness. I, You know, uh, something I've been thinking about as you've been talking is um, that your point about, you, you know, you can't go into a village and say you should be in school because people will not listen to you, they need people who actually have, who live there, have context. But how did you earn the trust of the people who work with you to have these conversations with within villages? How did you begin to form those relationships, build that trust and, um, and gather that, that team on the ground? Yeah, we've been working with our team, some of our team, actually the main director for years. Um, some of them almost a decade even before justice rising was officially a thing we we had relationship and it was i think a lot of it was not just saying okay we're gonna swoop in and we know everything so you know we're here for the week and here's all of our (laughs) powerful knowledge right Um, it was much more just like hey we are going we're not gonna live far away in these isolated compounds like we're gonna live with you guys several, like for years, we actually shared a home, um, with our country director. We kind of rented the upstairs and him and his family were on the downstairs, like the main level. Um, whenever we go to communities and we'll have to spend the night, we literally will, there's this chief, um, in one of the villages and he opens up his home to us and we sleep on the floor or in the little huts that they have. And it was, I think that really helped our relationship um, and helped to build trust because they were like, oh, you guys, you aren't separating yourself. You aren't acting like you're better than us or you're not coming in with these weird mentality. You're, you're just like us. And I, 
I think it's just being incarnational in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, a lot of development and aid workers and a lot of the expat communities in some of the places we work, we, you know, they, they tend to sometimes get a bad rap because they, you know, live in these protected compounds and, you know, go from point A to point B in their, you know, armored vehicles. And so I think that's something that we wanted to push back against a little bit and be a little bit more integrated and you know, incarnational, like I said before, in the way that we engage um, with community and the communities that we work in. And so I think just having that, you know, connection point and even just sitting down for a cup of tea or sitting down and sharing a meal, or if someone's going through a really hard time, sitting down and praying with them or sharing stories. I think that just does so much in creating and building that relational capital and the relational equity that we need to, to have this level of trust with the communities that we serve. And so that that is in a lot of ways kind of the ethos and, and the approach that our staff take um, wherever we work. We don't want to just you know, swoop in and, and, you know, do a a drive-by program, you know, like Cass mentioned, but how do we truly build relationship in the communities that we work? So it's, there's a greater mutuality with it. And it's not just, you know, one side helping the other, but there's mutual learning and mutual benefits. And I think when we're able to accomplish that, that's when we can really dig in and, and, learn from one another, which is incredibly valuable and, and beautiful and redemptive. And I think that's something that's, that's one of our core philosophies in terms of how we approach our programs. Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit um, and talk a little bit about how you got here, right? Because I think this is a really, really fascinating part of the story. And I know that that you each came to a little bit differently. Cassandra, let's start with you. How how on earth did you, because you grew up here in the U.S., right? Uh, well, Canada, actually. I'm Canadian. Oh, can, uh, Canadian. So how did you end up from growing up in Canada to deciding that you wanted to uh, work in some of these high conflict areas? How did that even happen? Yeah, well, for me, I always wanted to, I always wanted to work overseas. I wanted to be a missionary growing up. It, I don't even remember how that first came to be, but it was just something always kind of in me. And my mom really told me to pray about where I was supposed to go and where I was supposed to travel to be a missionary. And so I did as like a little eight and nine year old. And when I was 10, I really, I heard about what was going on in the Congo and really felt like God was speaking to me specifically about the country of Zaire, it was called at the time and switched later to the Congo. And during that point, when I was 10, it was about 1996, 97-ish. And during that time, it was the height of Congo's conflict. And so that's when I really started pouring over information and doing research. And anytime anything would come on the news about the Congo, I was there looking at it, watching it, weeping over that area, over stories of kids being abducted and forced to be child soldiers or child brides. And at the time I was like, again, as a 10 year old, these kids were my age. And I was just horrified that, oh my gosh, there are kids in the world where they've just a very different story than me. And how is, how are we allowing this to happen in our lifetime? Like we need to stop this. And so I never really knew what that would look like. Um, at the beginning, I think I thought I was like, well, missionaries, build orphanages. Maybe I will build an orphanage. It was just, <laughs> I, I didn't really have an idea. And when I finished school, I started traveling around two different war zones and looking at, okay, how, what is my piece? What do I bring to the table? How can I have any kind of role in this or partner with local communities? Like, what do I do? And I traveled around for several years to like Eastern Congo and Southern Sudan, um, even places in the Middle East, really looking and asking the questions like, who's, who's making an impact? What are different things I can do? How do we disrupt cycles of conflict? Like, how do we stop this? But um, after a while, I just kind of got quite burned out looking, just being so immersed. Like I lived in a mud hut in Southern Sudan 
because I wanted to get to Darfur to stop the genocide, which I know sounds very optimistic. <laughs> um, but I was just very much curious about what, what my role could be. And after getting quite traumatized, hearing so many stories, living in these, these contexts that um, make you quite vulnerable. And I just kind of laid it before God and was like, okay, God, I cannot do this on my own. I can't figure this out. I don't know what the best response is, but I'm seeing a lot of bad responses. Like what on earth do I do? And if there's a strategy from heaven, that is what I want. But if there's, if you don't have an answer for this, like I'm done. If you're not going to give me a strategy, I don't want to be involved in this because it's too hard. It's too traumatizing. I am not the person for this. And it was almost as if there's this excitement from heaven as God was just like, yes, that's what I wanted you to ask, like build schools. And that's mm. when he really spoke, use education as a way to transform these communities. So it was from that point that I had partnered, I started working with the, um, who's still our Congolese director, uh, country director, and started working with him. He was a teacher and then a principal for many years. And we started looking in at various communities asking, where, where's the biggest need? Where's the most underreached area? Um, where does no one else want to go? Like send in the Christians, send in people who aren't afraid um, and who have that hope to hold on to. And we'll go to these areas. And so that's what we did. We started finding the worst war-torn areas we could find and building schools. It was very ragtag at the beginning. <laughs> I did not mean to start a nonprofit by any means. It was just kind of responding to to what I felt like God was saying. Um, and we had a, a, about three schools um, that were again a little a little ragtag um, when Edison and I got married, and we decided together to actually start a nonprofit. Uh, I, that is so fascinating. Edison, I want to get to your story in a minute, but there's, there's just a question that has been rolling through my head this entire conversation. And I want, and you touched on it, which was, um, let's get the Christians. They're not afraid. And in some of the war zones that you traveled through, like, weren't you afraid? Weren't you scared for your life? Um, it, maybe at times, there's a couple times when I, and it's funny because I am a person who is not like this fearless person normally. I suffer with a lot of anxiety as Edison could probably, could probably <laughs> Still to this day, she can't, <laughs> she cannot kill her own spider, so she will scream from the other room and I'll have to go take care of it. Wait, I want to make sure we've got this. You will go into war zones, but you won't kill a spider? Okay, spiders are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> all their legs, all their eyes. <laughs> no judgment no judgment um so there's a couple times when i had felt actual fear but um it was always very much like i i never felt like i went in alone i always felt like i was tucked i always use the word tucked which sounds funny but kind of tucked into jesus and i just locked eyes with him and was just like okay god Wherever, wherever you lead me or wherever we're going, um, I'm just going to tuck myself in you. And then I, you don't really have to be afraid. Like those promises that he said in the Bible of you don't have to fear. Um, I really took those seriously. And again, a couple times where I was in very serious situations, one time, even the first, I get the first time going into the red zone. I knew that there were a lot of rebels who were cutting off people's lips, noses, um, and breasts actually. And I remember just thinking like, Oh my gosh, like what am I getting myself into? And the night before we went in, I just kind of got on my face and prayed. I was so scared. I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm gonna, what if I get chopped up? And I remember just, just feeling God's hand on it. And it was never him saying, okay, Cassandra, you have to go like suck it up. He was always just present. And he was always like, all right, well, we're in this together. Like I'm going into these places. I'm going to invite you to meet me in this war zone. And it was just an invitation. I just could not resist. Oh my gosh. Um, That's incredible. 
That's unimaginable. Again, I'm just going to use that word over and over because it is unimaginable. I think to me and most of us listening um, that following God's call on our life would lead us to places um, where the, you know, that's the potential consequence or those are the the realities um, that we'd, we would face. You know, I talk to so many people who are like, oh, I'm afraid to launch my business. And I'm like, that's not even fear, right? Like we all feel fear, like you said, but to follow God into places where like that is, it's yeah, unimaginable. I'm just going to call that this episode that unimaginable. <laughs> um, so Edison, I, I want to talk about your story because um, you actually had a successful career in finance. And again, doing some some research before this episode, I love the part of your story where you just had that moment of realization that even though you had a heart to um, uh, to serve in this way, you knew you couldn't do it as an outsider. You were essentially going to have to go all in, right? Tell yeah. us tell us a little bit about that, about your story. Yeah. Well, I mean, even before going into finance, um, you know, I, you know, my career and kind of, you know, the different activities that I did before, I, I kind of jumped around a lot. So, I mean, I often, you know, when I, when I share my story, I often say how even as like a three-year-old, you know, my, my very practical, uh, you know, Korean immigrant parents, they would sit me down as a three-year-old and say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would just say, I, I have no idea what I want to be, but maybe an artist. And instead they would say, no, you don't want to be an artist. You want to be an architect <laughs> oh. instead. <laughs> And so they they kind of incepted this idea of you know I think that it, there's that old kind of kind of stereotype where you know if you're an Asian immigrant you know kid growing up in the U.S. you cannot you have three choices you can either be an engineer a doctor or a lawyer and um, I think architect was a little bit closer to the <laughs> the engineer side <laughs> being an artist but uh, but yeah you know I you know went to school and studied architecture um you know like a, a very dutiful korean <laughs> immigrant kid um and then eventually found my way uh, overseas and even before i went into finance i spent a year uh doing short-term um missions in zimbabwe and i think that really kind of made such a formative impact on my life where just you know for about a year all i really did was i went around and stayed with different you know, people in their homes and people were incredibly generous and hospitable people who didn't necessarily have a ton of resources and and finances. But I I just found such incredible generosity and kindness from people who, you know, would take me in and, and, you know, house me and feed me. Um, and, And, you know, I was there with a missions organization trying to start up a base out there. And so a lot of it was just you know, me learning from those around me and just listening. So in, in in a way, I kind of think of it as my like listening tour for about a year. But I think during that time, I, I just learned so much about, you know, the power of, you know, harnessing um, local talent and local, you know, understanding of the marketplace. You know, I think I wanted to start up all these businesses and and had, you know, this idea in my head that I, you know, have the ability or the talent or the, you know, the technical know how to do these things. But I, I quickly realized that, you know, there's no way that I can better understand the local market or the local challenges that people face than the people who are living day to day in those communities. And so, you know, very quickly I found out, okay, what can I bring to the table? How can I support local entrepreneurs or local Um, leaders in these communities. And I just found that, you know, if I could, you know, bring, you know, come alongside of people with some kind of technical advice where needed, or if I can provide and connect capital or bridge capital um, to some of these local entrepreneurs, that's probably the best way I can do that. And then over time, you know, worked into moved into finance and worked in banking for a number of years. And then eventually when I finally did, um, you know, get into this work with Justice Rising, you know, it, it just occurred to me that, you know, the best way to really kind of leverage local talent and to develop human capital is education. There's no better way to do that. And so even though education may not be, you know, some kind of silver bullet in terms of, you know, solving, you know, a seemingly intractable problem like conflict and war, 
you know, I don't think that you can accomplish or really arrive at a place of peace without having education really being a, a, you know, a profound, you know, building block in that, you know, towards that end. And so I think for me, that, that was a huge part of it is just learning from locals, sitting down, you know, really trying to understand what people understood, um, you know, rather than trying to figure out, you know, sitting, you know, pretending like I had all the answers. Hmm. How did you two meet, by the way? We met at church, actually. Um, hmm. He had been to Africa and I had just gotten, or he was in Zimbabwe and I had just gotten home from Congo. And our pastors were just like, you work in Africa, you work in Africa, this could work. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of rolled our eyes, but it clearly it worked out in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I have a, I have a, this is probably a huge question, way more than we could cover in the next few minutes. But how, how has your faith changed since you've been doing this work? Um, how has your prayer life changed? How do you talk to God through some of the challenges? I'm, I'm sure each of you are affected a little bit uh, differently, um, as well as together, uh, working together and being married. But tell me a little bit about your faith journey through all of this. Yeah, for me, I grew up, um, you know, I got saved when I was three. Like, I always grew up with a personal relationship with God. But then working in conflict zones, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's this, like, um, I'm showing my hands, but I guess you can't see my hands. It's like <laughs> cupping the face of Jesus and, like, looking at him really close and just kind of being like, what are you doing or where are you or what a, just really asking harder questions just from a very, from a deep place of intimacy. Um, because you see these horrors, these traumatizing horrors and the way, the way war affects people and the way it like the community, one of the communities we have four schools in and it's in the active red zone. So they've had, cyclical conflict for 20 plus years, over 20 years, probably 30 at this point. Um, and what that does to a community and the kind of stories that come out again, how many students have told us about various beheadings that they've seen, just these stories that you have to wrestle with and bringing them to Jesus. Like we always say at church, like God is good all the time. And you're like, okay, where's your goodness? as you know her mom was just beheaded in front of this little girl right where is your goodness when a child dies of hunger and now i have to talk to the mom and say to her god is good like where are you in this moment and i i think that wrestle and those conversations with jesus they're either gonna they're either gonna push you away or you get to you get to be drawn in closer. And I feel like every single time they've drawn me in closer, every single time we like, we, I go back to the cross, like he took the victory. Like he is victorious because of his death on the cross. He is good because he is sitting there, even in the midst of all of this evil, in the midst of all of this pain and suffering, he is still so present and so good and so faithful to us. So I feel like, for me, my walk with God, it always gets closer in places of conflict. It's hard and it's painful and it's raw and I have to wrestle through things. But I feel like every time I'm in these places, I just draw closer to Him. I want to. I want to get Edison. I want to get your um, feedback on this too. But I want to stay on this for just a minute because there's so many people who are listening to this who have had hardship, um, not anywhere probably close to what you have observed, who maybe feel like, um, how could God let this happen? Or where was God in this? Or who feel angry at God because of something that they walked through. And again, I know it's sort of apples and oranges, um, but what is what would you, what advice would you give to somebody who's just really struggling with that, struggling with, you know, they're listening to you speak and say, I, I want that greater intimacy, but I'm so angry at God. I'm so, I, I don't understand. 
Um, what would you say to somebody who might be feeling that right now? I think it's good to be angry. I think it's good to have those wrestling moments. I always kind of picture it as me. I think this picture that I've always had that he kind of gave to me early on was me in this empty room with just a bunch of stories around me, these pieces of paper. It's like these moments that you're angry about. And it would be me grabbing the piece of paper and like holding it up and being like, where were you in this moment? Like, I'm angry. I can't believe this happened. It feels like I was alone or it feels like they were alone or couldn't you have stopped that child from dying? Couldn't you have um, stopped that woman from being raped? Like, where were you? And really being angry, feeling all the feelings, holding up those stories and then letting him speak. And letting his truth kind of wash over you of like, he, it wasn't his will. It wasn't his desire. It wasn't his design for that area or that situation. Like that is not who he is. And just seeing, for me, it was seeing how much he broke and how, how deeply it hurt and affected him seeing these injustices happen. Um, And then seeing where he was in the midst of it, which really changed my point of view in a lot of ways and being like, Oh, you, you were there in, in this way or in that way. And you didn't want this to happen. And life is unfair and it's not, it's not what he desires sometimes. Like war is not genocide is not what his heart is, of course. And so watching him grieve over the situation also really helped me. So I would say just get raw and get real. Um, and yeah, just don't be afraid to feel all the emotions. Sometimes as Christians, we're like, Oh, I shouldn't be mad at God. I, (laughs) I think that's okay. God has really big shoulders that you can be mad and just cry on. But as long as you move past it, don't stay mad, just go with him on the journey. Um, and he he shows up and he he explains and talks and he's good. I think that's so important because I talk to so many people who sort of want to rationalize it in their own human mind before they go to God so they can like go to God not angry and actually that's where our anger belongs, right? Mhm. Yeah. yeah. Lean it on. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, Edison, that that's so powerful. Thank you so much. I'm going to like, after this interview, I think I'm going to go cry somewhere because it's just like so true and so powerful. And, um, and I love that. Edison, tell me a little bit about your story, your faith story, walking through all of this. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. So I, I, th- I think similar to, you know, what Cass was mentioning, um, you know, again, my, my story is a little bit different. I, Kind of grew up in a Christian home, but kind of not. My parents were more culturally Christian, um, but the, the spiritual rock in my family has always been my grandmother, who, from you know what you know the stories that she sh- shared with me, like she came to faith at Billy Graham conference in South Korea <laughs> years ago, mm. young girl, and and she's just been had such a beautiful um, just faith. Um, and some of my earliest memories, I just remember. You know, like I'd wake up in the middle of the night, go to, you know, to the restroom or something like that. And I'd pass by her room and her you know, door would be kind of creaked open. And I would just listen to her pray. And she would just be praying through the night. And that just left such a mark on my life. And, you know, for, for me personally, I, I didn't really come to faith until, you know, college. And that's really when I started to take, um, yeah, just personal ownership of my my faith and my faith journey. And that that's really what's kind of set me on this course of, you know, where, where I am now. But in terms of the Congo and working in some of the contexts that we do and, and seeing the level of suffering that we do, you know, like Cass mentioned, we, you know, I think when people are dealing with such overwhelming and unimaginable things and suffering, Christian platitudes just simply don't work. You know, right. like, like Cass said, you can't just say, oh, you know, if that terrible, terrible thing happened to you. It's because God has something better for you. It just doesn't work. <laughs> right. And right. So, yeah, and that's so what, true. And we hear that all the time here in Christian circles and in the communities that we find, find ourselves in. But you can't tell that to to people 
who've gone through such incredible suffering. And so I think for me, you know, when we're so surrounded by, you know, these stories of such intense suffering, and sometimes we ourselves get secondary trauma from them. But I think we've really had to learn how do we lean into the promises of God? And how do we lean into the person that he is? And, you know, like, you know, when I read through my Bible, the psalmist writes that he makes wars cease to the ends of the world. And, you know, either you believe it or you don't. And, you know, which isn't to say that it's easy or it's going to happen very quickly. But we hold on to the truth and the promise that God is, his heart is to see um, wars cease, to see, you know, to have wars end and to see suffering end. And, you know, I think, you know, you go to the book of Revelations, it talks about how, you know, one day there will be no, you know, no more tears, no more death, no more sickness. And I think, you know, even if that doesn't happen on this side of eternity, I think we have to understand that we do live in a broken world. And one day, you know, God is going to restore all things unto himself. And that happened on the cross. Um, But I I think, you know, which isn't to say that it's easy, and which isn't to say that we don't have to wrestle through that intense level of suffering. But I think that's really helped me kind of work through that is really reminding myself of the truth of who he is and the promises that he continually and faithfully makes um, in, in scripture. I love that. And what I love about what you said specifically is, as you were talking about, um, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth, that that is not a, like he engages us in that story, right? Like what you are doing is part of the bigger story of ending wars to the end of the earth by educating, by bringing hope um, uh, to these places where it feels like uh, there is no hope. And and what I love about your story is it's not like, okay, well, if you're going to end all wars, like go do that, God, and I'll wait here. You understand that there is like a fabric of people who just simply say yes to I understand that this sounds crazy to everybody else in my life, but this is what God is calling me to do, and I'm going to follow it. I, I've got to ask: How do your parents feel about what you're doing? Do, they must worry about you all the time. I have to, I have two grown sons, so I have to ask. That question. <laughs> my mom, she she's really happy when I got married. <laughs> when I first started doing this, I was living yeah alone in a mud hut in York war torn South Sudan. So yes, I definitely gave my poor parents um, some worries. But one thing that happened was I was praying once and I was homesick. I was like 18 and overseas. And I was like, God, I just miss my family. And he kind of reminded me, he's like, "Um, I'm your family. I'm your home. Heaven's your home. Like root yourself in me, not not in a physical place. And I called my mom and I was like, do you know what you did when you dedicated me to God when I was a baby? Like he took that seriously. And my mom just kind of was taken aback. And she's like, I did. I gave you to Jesus. And at the end of the day, like I meant, wow. And that really helped her. So God was very kind to do that when I was 18 at the beginning of this journey And so my mom would always, anytime she'd feel anxious, she would just be like, okay, God, like you are her father more than we're her parents. So like, you have to take care of her. And that really helped my mom. Wow. Edison, what about you? Yeah. I mean, they've definitely been on a journey themselves. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm sure my parents uh, would prefer me to to have stayed in either architecture or banking or something (laughs) where I, or some kind of white collar job. Um, but you know, I, I think for me, um, my, my parents have really been supportive and I think they are just so thrilled that, um, Cass and I have found something that we're really passionate about and something that we feel, yeah, something that we so come alive in. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely a journey for them. And I think, you know, considering the fact that my parents have gone through just so much themselves, you know, my parents grew up in post-war South Korea right after the, the Korean War. And so they, they grew up in intense poverty and, and they grew up with a lot of lack. And so for them, I think, you know, their immigrant journey to the U.S. was, okay, how do we sacrifice so that we can give our kids a better life? 
And so I think, I think they've seen that now where, you know, Kat, both Cass and I were, were really happy and we're, we're so excited and we're exactly where we need to be. But, um, but yeah, like I, I think for them, that was a big mountain and, you know, to, to hurdle um, this idea that, you know, we, we don't necessarily have the most, you know, in, in multiple ways, most stable <laughs> job in the world, you know, going from place to place and going to war zones. Um, but I, I, I think it's been a, 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 a journey for them and, and um, they've come around the other side and are, are just so supportive now. Hmm. Well, I have to tell you, this conversation has changed me. Um, I can say that with confidence, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners who are listening right now are, are nodding their heads as well. Um, this has just been a profound conversation, and I'm so grateful to both of you for sharing your story um, and for the work that you do. I, I know that I and many of us listening would love to know, how can we better support the work that you do? Where can we find you online? All the things. Yeah, you can find us at justicerising.org. Uh, we're also on social media at justice underscore rising. Um, and then on Facebook, I think we're be justice rising, but yes, we're quite active there. So you can definitely follow us there. Um, people always are looking. I think sometimes you hear stories of war zones and you're like, well, I don't want to go to a war zone, but we, it's not just about going physically. It's also about, um, yeah, saying, okay, what can I do to get involved? Whether that is giving monthly, we have a peace partner program that people can give um, $5 supports a child, um, covers their school fees for a month. So you can support five kids for $25 a month and really easy. Or we have people who are like, well, I want to build a school. We have 18 schools, 2,500 students. Some people are like, well, I want to help build a school. Um, so you can get involved that way. Um, or start a fundraiser or be praying or just so many different ways to be like, okay, I don't want to actually physically go myself, but I want to be involved with what God is doing overseas, bringing peace to conflict areas. Um, so we definitely encourage people to check out different ways to get involved online and yeah, just let, let the, I don't know what God is stirring move to action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would love to, um, in just a moment, I'm going to ask for um, you guys to pray over our listeners. And before I do that, I just kind of want to jump back to something I said earlier, because we do have a lot of people who uh, listen to this podcast because they are wrestling with what God is calling them to do, or they are walking in it and they need encouragement, whatever it is. And so um, I think that there is always fear around that because we are stepping into the unknown. And I think that all of that fear is valid, whether it's a business or switching jobs or whatever it is. I think your story resonates so much with me because it makes me feel, and some people may be called to go into to war zones and, um, and that's valid too, but there's something in hearing your story that makes me feel like, well, if she can follow God into that, if they, if both of you can follow God into that, I can certainly say yes to the thing that he's calling me to do. And um, again, I know that's apple and apples and oranges, but fear is fear and obedience is obedience. And so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just saying a prayer for anyone who is maybe feeling any kind of fear on any kind of level, because God cares about all of it. Um you know, there's no, there's no scale. He, he, he loves all of us. He sees all of us. Um, and he calls all of us. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just saying a prayer for people who are wrestling with the fear of saying yes and going to the places that God is calling them to go this year and beyond. Yeah, for sure. Jesus, God, we love you so much. And God, we are so grateful for who you are. We are so grateful that we're your children and we can just tuck ourselves into you. So God, right now, we just we just lock eyes with you, God. We look deep into your eyes and we just, we say we trust you wherever you're leading us, the invitation to go into new territory, the invitation to take new leaps. We just, God, we say yes to you. Father, we want to follow you wherever you're leading. We want to partner with you to see transformation around the world. 
to see transformation in our own backyard and our own families and our communities. So God, we just, we lock eyes with you and we say, yes, you are bigger than our fears. You are bigger than our anxieties and our insecurities. And we just take those right now, God, and we lay them at your feet. And we say that God, you are trustworthy. We can lean into you and we can trust you for strategy and ideas and innovative approaches to different problems. God, we are so grateful for who you are. We are so grateful that you are present and that you want this more than we want it. We are so grateful that you have, you've thought of the next steps. So we just lean into you right now, God, and we say yes. We lay our fears down and we say yes to you, God. I just pray for anyone who is listening and who feels anxious or anyone who's listening and who isn't sure how they're going to, how they're going to take that leap. And God, we just lay down our anxieties. We lay down our pride and we just say yes to you and your kingdom and the dreams that we can have with you. Thank you that you are a good God. Yeah. And and God, we, we just pray for everyone who's listening and, you know, we don't pretend to think that this was by any means an easy year. And we know that there have been many challenges and and a lot of suffering and a lot of things that we're working through individually and and corporately as a body. And so God, for the different things that you've stirred within us in 2020 and the different things that you're leading us to, that seed that you've planted inside of us, that you, that we would just pray, we pray that you would just continue to cultivate and nurture those seeds so that they become yeah, just fully aligned with the things that you've already determined in your heart to do on this earth, to restore all things unto yourself, and that you would use us, that there would be people listening that would say, you know, here I am, Lord, send me. And so, God, we, we just ask that you would raise up those leaders and those people who are willing to go to partner with your kingdom here on earth. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cassandra and Edison, thank you so, so much for your time today. Yeah, thank thank you you. so much for chatting. I'd like to thank Edison and Cassandra Lee for joining me on the show today. Just a reminder that you can access the show notes for today's episode, including where to find out more about Justice Rising at donsadler.com slash 048. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. This helps us reach more listeners with incredible testimonies of God's faithfulness through business. This has been the Your Purpose is Calling podcast, conversations with Christians who are finding purpose, redefining work, and changing their world. I'm your host, Don Sadler, the Christian Productivity Coach. Thanks for listening. <music>